Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Food and Beverage Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Josh Fisher. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about all things food trends. We're going to be looking at some of the craziest food trends and the different food shows that are on TV, on the digital space, and we're going to talk about how they're affecting the industry. We're going to look at the good, the bad, and overall, the delicious. Joining us today to talk about the food industry is Andre Natera, executive chef at the Fairmont in Austin. Hey, Andre. Hey, Josh. How are you? Good to hear you. Good to hear you as well. Um, so first off, I've actually been to the Fairmont. Uh, I went to South by Southwest this year, and I had an amazing experience there. Oh, that's that's great news. We actually opened um, a, a, a couple of days right before South by Southwest. So uh, we were brand new when you were here. Yeah, um, I went with like a few people. Uh, we had just heard about it, and it was it was cool, and it was crowded, which is always a good sign. That's a, that was a great sign. How did you bring your skills into it, and how do you tailor your food there? Well, you know, it's it's um, it's a it's a great property because we have a lot of different uh, concepts to dine. So we have everything uh, from a from a grilled restaurant garrison, which really focuses on on modern cuisine, but with a grill smoke char element to it. We have review, which is a um, an internationally inspired global uh, dining. Um, almost like a food hall, but, but not necessarily. It's more like a, um, a restaurant where you could sit down and you could order from any of the kitchens. So we have an Asian kitchen, we have an Italian kitchen, we have a raw bar and we have a, a French patisserie. So regardless of where you sit, you could order from any of the kitchens. Um, then we have Fulton, which is our lobby lounge, which has, you know, um, you know, really, really, uh, crafted chef driven bar food, but I, I think it's fantastic rules and regs, which is our, pool restaurant where it's a, you know, healthy, interesting pool food. And then we have rules and regs bar, which we focus on Mexican street food. Um, and then we also have good things, which is our grab and go, which is a uh, French pastries and whatnot. So the cool thing for me is to be able to create concepts and develop dishes in different, different types of cuisine and, and really showcase uh, different areas of my skill set, different areas of my creativity and different areas of, uh, you know, my experience and how it got me here. Yeah, which I think is uh, amazing for one and two. I mean, you're—I mean, you can just tell the inspiration that you have from so many different places. So, would you say you have like any main inspiration that you pull from, or is it like—is this just really going from all over? Um, you know, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of of you know, being a chef, you you get inspired. You pick up every new cookbook. You start reading. You start learning. You go out and eat a lot. You you experiment. Um, but one of the things that I was really fortunate with at this property is the team that I have around me. I, I was really fortunate um, to have some great chefs. Um, so my brigade is about, uh, you know, about 100 chefs or so um, and about 20 senior chefs and some chef de cuisines, a couple of executive sous chefs. And some of them have worked in Singapore and some of them have worked in Canada and some of them have worked in the Middle East. So um, when we all came together in the early stages, there was about eight of us um, living in a house. Uh, we, we rented an Airbnb where we did all the development for all the recipes for all the restaurants. So it was, it was a fantastic time where you had one guy that had worked at La Bernadan and uh, in, in Singapore, and he was an R&D chef, and another guy that, that you know, worked in the Napa Valley and had his own place, and another guy that worked in, in uh, Canada and Vancouver who was bringing a different flavor, and another guy that spent some time at 11 Madison Park. So all these chefs coming together and, and looking at what they did, um, in all these different areas, we were all able to come together and say, well, what's the best way we could do it here at the Fairmont Austin? So um, it was some of my creativity, but I couldn't take all the credit. It was definitely a team effort. No, of course. I mean, it takes more than one to make something like this happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I was very fortunate. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. 
Uh, so, I mean, like a crowd like South by Southwest, I mean, it brings so many different people in from all across, you know, all across the country. I mean, you know, there's people internationally. So what's it like uh, catering to that crowd versus, you know, Austin on like a normal day or uh, a normal week? You know, South by Southwest, when we opened, I didn't really know what to expect. We just assumed we were going to be busy. Um, and because it was so new and we were just getting our sea legs, it felt busy. You know, it was it was uh, reasonably chaotic, controlled chaos, but uh, as expected with an opening. Um, and now I would say, you know, we have our sea legs about us. Um, and I think we'd be a little bit more prepared this time around for South by Southwest where we could uh, we, we know what, where we went right. We know where we went wrong and we know what mistakes we wouldn't do again. No, for sure. I don't think anyone can expect what South by Southwest brings. No, and and it was it was fun. We 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 were uh, we made it by the skin of our teeth to open in time, and uh, you know the hotel filled up. We had a, we had a blast, and we're working in new kitchens that we hadn't uh, ever worked in, and and with teams that uh, that really didn't know how to work together. Um, but but we survived. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that, and I'm glad to hear that you're still doing it, and it just sounds amazing. Also, kind of going off like the whole customer thing. As you know, the emergence of food TV shows has just been rampant. Um, I mean, it's been it's been the trend for a while now, but now with the you know the digital side of things and Netflix putting out TV shows, there's just there's too many to keep track of. I mean, personally, you know, you go on YouTube and you see eight million Gordon Ramsay videos, uh, and it's just you know there's gluttony involved. There's just this whole avenue of of chefs, whether on the digital side or on TV. So what's your opinion on this and do you like it or do you dislike it? Um, you know, to be honest with you, I, I would say I, I don't like about 90% of it. There's about 10% of the TV shows that I actually, I, I do like. I like what uh, Netflix has done with some of their documentary series uh, through Chef's Table. I like what they've... Chef's Table's beautiful. It, yeah, it's so good. It's beautiful. It, te it, it tells a great story of the chef. It tells a great story of the food. It, it really... It really um, highlights the individual, tells their backstory, shows some of the struggles that they went through. It humanizes them a little bit, um, and and there's a really uh, there's a really good story behind behind most of the episodes, and you feel like you know you, you become you become uh, invested in the story of the chef, right? Um, so I think I look at Chef's Table, I think that's so well done. Mind of a Chef also, and you know I know that is um, maybe a little bit geared more towards industry chefs. Um, where you know they speak the language, so if if you're not a chef or, or if you're not in the restaurant industry, some things might be over your head a little bit and in, in mind of a chef. Yeah. But for the most part, very well done. But shows like, um, you know, Kitchen Nightmares or Hell's Kitchen or Nailed It or Worst Bakers in America come to mind, or Worst Cooks in America. If I'm not sure which one, which one, which one is correct, but you know, these are the, these these restaurants that you know they they celebrate bad cooking. Um. Which, which is a scary thought because, you know, being a chef that's put 23 years into this, um, put my heart and soul into it um, and, and seen ups and downs. This is not necessarily what I want new people coming into the industry thinking that that it's like. And uh, unfortunately, what it does is it, it paints um, my 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 industry. Um, I, I think in a ne negative light, it makes a little bit of a mockery of some of the things that we do. And, and uh, um and as other people view these shows and they think, well, if, if that's what's being celebrated, let's do more of it, right? So uh, mediocrity uh, begins to displace the quality. Um, so these chefs, they, they go on these shows and they get their 15 minutes of fame. Then they go out and they open up a restaurant. Uh, you know, they may have some funds or they may have some investors. And what ends up happening is they, they begin to displace, uh, you know, th there becomes a displacement. So they displace uh, customers. They displace 
uh, cooks. They re- displace resources uh, from the restaurants that actually earned it, right? That that uh, earned it through merit, through years of work or, or saving up their money. Um, and then what ends up happening is what it displaced, uh, there has to be a consequence. So maybe these us- other restaurants have to close for the new restaurants to open, right? It's not a something for nothing yeah. exchange. Um, and then what ends up happening is the person who it was their dream and they had no experience and maybe they, they, you know, they were on the worst cook in America. Uh, clearly, you know, maybe they didn't have the skills to open up a restaurant, but they go and they go and do that. What ends up happening is maybe their restaurant closes within a year when they realize that maybe, maybe they weren't ready for it. Um, and so this kind of creates a vicious cycle in, in the industry, which, uh, um, is really starting to displace a lot of really good talent. And, and when we're dealing with talent shortages and things like that, unfortunately, a young cook that's coming right out of culinary school, um, when they're so green to the industry, they view someone on TV as the person that they want to work under. There's the person that they're going to need to learn from, where it might not be the case. The person that they need to work under, might they might need to look for someone a little older, a little wiser, or someone that's been in the, in the business for a little bit and has become a little bit more successful. No, that makes sense. And it gets lost with everything. I mean, from a consumer standpoint, just, you know, on on YouTube, for example, these Gordon Ramsay shows and like the Kitchen Nightmares, they're they're cut so you only see the worst parts. You know, you're not even seeing uh, anything else. You know, it's like these six minute clips of just the worst of the worst. And these get millions and millions of views. Uh, and also going off what you were saying, um, I think these shows also set people's expectations of what to expect, you know, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And I just don't think it's organic. No. And you have what I like to, uh, what I like to call the Sharknado effect. And I have to give credit to uh, my, my, one of my chefs, uh, Matthew Schaefer, who, who coined that term, you know, Sharknado was, it, it was deliberately a, a bad movie. Um, but now, now you see Sharknado yep. 37. I, I don't know what they're at now, but uh, you know, it seemed like a good idea and it was a disaster. So let's make more of them. Um, and so you start to see that with these cooking shows where it's a disaster. Great. People loved it. And everyone's in on the joke. We all know it's, it's intended to be bad. Let's make more of it. But unfortunately, not everyone now is in on the joke. So if, if, you, if, you, if you got to the joke late, you think, oh, uh, th- this is where it's supposed to be. Exactly. Especially for young audiences who are getting all this content, you know, because they, they live in it um, and just moving up and seeing the whole landscape and the whole industry is something different. Yeah, and you know the, the the interesting thing for me is Gordon Ramsay, right? He's a Michelin three star chef, very very talented, um, and he's highly successful. I can't knock him for it. I, I don't. I, I I'm not in his situation, so I can't say that I wouldn't have done it myself. Um, however, I will say that um, serious chefs now, at least in in my world, serious chefs don't look up to him. Where ten years ago, uh, or maybe fifteen years ago, every serious chef looked up to Gordon Ramsay because because he was you know, that three Michelin star chef from London and, and, and he was cutting edge and, and he was, he was revolutionary and everyone was buying his books and wanted to be like him where now I think most chefs, you know, want to distance themselves from him. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So just going off of this a little bit more, I mean, food trends are also such a big thing the past couple of years, the past five years. I mean, I'm sure it's been going on for longer, but what food trends are you seeing that are popping up, you know, midway through 2018 and are they good or are they bad? Um, <clears throat> there, there's some great food trends. So if I, if I was going to s- speak to what I see right now, I see a lot of, uh, specific dietary food trends. You know, the, the big one right now I see right now is, uh, the ketogenic diet. Everyone, 
everyone's coming in wanting to eat keto and high protein and cooked in coconut oil or, or their uh, butter coffee and, and whatnot, um, which I, I think a ketogenic diet lends itself well to chefs for cooking. I think it, it, you know, you're working with um, vegetables and high protein and fats, and that's, that's the way we like to cook for the most part, um, eliminating you know, kind of your heavy starches. So I, I like the trend of ketogenic because I could get creative with it. I think um, a lot of uh, a lot of the the diets um, are also gearing towards more a more vegetable centric based diet, um, with where you have this protein flip where uh, you know before you maybe had a a, a big piece of meat with a, a little bit of vegetables as the garnish. Now it's the opposite. You have a big plate of vegetables with a little bit of meat as the garnish. You know whether it be um, you know flaked little bits of dried beef on top of some smoked carrots or something like that but you're really starting to see that protein flip where, where the vegetables are now the center of the plate and vegetables also being treated like 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 meats where um vegetables are being smoked and grilled and charred and burnt um the way you would uh barbecue you know we have a dish on our menu of barbecue cauliflower where we we treat it just like brisket um and most people when they try it they say that tastes like meat yeah so what about the opposite end of the food trends uh like the tasty videos and I go back to the word gluttony, but you see like the epic meal times and these over the top concoctions that I think people love to watch. And but in terms of, you know, from a chef standpoint, I just can't see that being any beneficial, being anything beneficial. You know, it's comical. I, I saw a picture today. Uh, one of my chefs showed me a picture of a burrito that was filled with ramen noodles and melted cheese. Uh, that they showed me on Instagram. I've definitely seen that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it, I thought it was comical. I laughed. I said, I I, I don't know if that's serious or not. Uh, I I could tell you that no serious chef would would put that on the menu. Um, you know that that's normally something that uh, you know maybe a home cook or an inexperienced cook that thinks they're being creative would 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 pull out. But unfortunately, if you don't know better, um, you you might be able to build a restaurant empire off of it, right? Um, so th there there's a little bit of of it's a scary land when we're talking about the subjective food world. And, you know, if I could give you an example of the way that the narrative is weaved and how we celebrate cooking, if you look at uh, Noma um, in, in, in Copenhagen, which for many years has been the number one restaurant in the world, and, and they've always been uh, in recent years looked at as the trendsetters in, in the industry. Um, and if you look at any chef now, any chef at, uh, you know, at, at a certain level, um, they understand fermentation, they understand foraging. And, you know, Noma went through a phase where they were serving insects and ants and ant larvae and, and bees and other things, um, or cooking in avocado and crocodile fat, right? So um, every chef now, it, it understands that. They understand, okay, let, it's, it's, it's not a foreign concept. However, if we flip the script and change the narrative, and let's say the first critic that went into Noma and made them successful came in and said, this is ridiculous. Who in their right mind would serve ants or crickets or anything like this? And who is fermenting foods? This is disgusting. And bash them. Every chef and, and, and Noma closed and was never successful. None of us would be fermenting right now, at least to the extent that it is now. None of us would be serving uh, you know, things like ants. You wouldn't see that on any menu in a, in a world's 50 best restaurant. And it would be a joke and chefs would laugh at it. So um, – it's interesting how the narrative can be spun depending on, on who's successful. So when a restaurant succeeds and a restaurant is successful, I also think journalists have a responsibility to, you know, maintain the integrity and not just promote, not just promote restaurants because they're of the moment um, because it's, it's a dangerous thing. The chefs that are on the come up view that and say, if that's, what's getting the accolades, let's do more of that. 
whether they agree with it or not. Every chef that's looking up to the chef at the top is saying, okay, if, 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 if we're going to get noticed, this is what we need to serve. And if it's potentially bad cooking, they're going to start to replicate more bad cooking. Um, and, and it goes back to what I say, where that mediocrity be- begins to displace the quality. Yeah, it's like a domino effect. In any industry, pushing the envelope is what you want to do because that's what creates new and amazing, not only products, but, you know, like the course for the future. But like you said, if everyone's going the wrong way and they're seeing things that are getting millions of hits online and going down that path, I don't know if that's the best path to go down. No, it's not. And, you know, one thing as a chef and and when you've been doing this for a minute, you start to have... um, this ability to cook, right? You cook intuitively and you, and you have a certain skill set. Um, uh, someone, someone told me the term the other day that I liked was called material intelligence or, you know, the kinesthetic ability to replicate things that you, you learn through repetition and doing it multiple times. And it's, it's something that, that can't be taught. It can only be learned. You can't read a book and, and know how to become a better cook. You could only, you could gain some base knowledge, but really the only way to get good at dicing onions is you have to dice onions. Um, and the interesting thing about that is I think when you get to a certain level, that, that material intelligence kicks in and, you, and, and it all kind of comes back to the same things, right? And every, every chef eventually starts to come back to good cooking. Uh, and I find it, uh, I, I find now in my career, you know, I've been doing this for 24 years. I find myself getting more excited for things that are done really well. Uh, almost, I get more excited for things that are done really well than things that are very creative. Like the simple things? Yeah, the simple things. I find I find uh, I I find a lot of excitement in in very simply prepared food when it's when it's flawless than I do overly complicated fussy food that that maybe I haven't seen certain ingredients before. I'll get more excited about seeing a perfectly made lobster bisque or a perfectly roasted piece of fish than I will about a foreign ingredient that just you know came from South America that I've never seen before. Hundred percent, and it reminds me of the movie uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, where you know you do the same thing every day for as long as you do it, and then you just you. I mean, you might not get to perfection, but you get pretty damn close. Yeah, you're right, and and you start to notice things that uh, you would only notice after doing it a hundred times. If if you put me in a, in a in a kitchen and I have multiple things going on, sometimes I'll I'll look at a cook and I'll say, hey, you know, check the chicken, and he'll say, how did you know it needed to be turned? I said, I I don't know. I just I cooked hundreds of thousands of chickens before i just know it's 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 built in me almost like a sixth sense uh like it is most chefs if you if you've done it a long time but you you don't get that out of uh seeing it on a youtube video or 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 reading about it in a book or a magazine um and the only way to become a really great cook is through repetition is through experience is is by doing it hundreds and hundreds of times and and and, and understanding it and and knowing it um almost almost like a autopilot this, this week, um, for example, I, um, uh, you know, we, we have a, a tremendously busy week and I was upstairs, uh, in, in my banquet kitchen on a cutting board, um, dicing tuna. And as I was having a conversation, um, with one of the chefs there, he says, chef, do you, do you like doing this? Just sitting at a cutting board all day. I said, quite honestly, I love it because I'm not even thinking anymore. I, I'm, I'm almost like in a meditative state where I, I'm just cutting tuna and I could, I could zone out for a minute and not have to be uh, Chef Andre, I could just be the guy at the cutting board, um, and I'm only able to do that because I've diced hundreds of pieces of tuna before. It's kind of like when you're driving, uh, and you know you kind of zone off for a second, and two minutes later you're like, "Wait a second, did I did I hit a red light? Like, did I go through it? <laughs> yeah, how did I get here? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So 
So what do you look for in a restaurant? Uh, you know, restaurants that you like, restaurants that you appreciate and respect. Like what's some tall tale signs that you look for in a good restaurant? You know, I, I think the first thing that I'm going to look for is, uh, you know, the attention to detail in the food, right? There's certain things that, that I could recognize on a plate that I could tell you that if, if you know, at what level is the chef at? Because um, trends, you know, you could hide some things with some trends, whether it be some microgreens or some shaved raw vegetables. You know, that's one-on-one. Any, any, any cook in culinary school can, can do that. However, when I look at the knife cuts, when I look at how the meat is seared, when I look at, you know, is the fish overcooked? These are the small details that you don't get um, just by just by trying it a few times. It takes years and years of, of repetition to get right. Um, and I ate at two restaurants. There's a, a, a tale of two restaurants. One restaurant I ate at um, it was a, a Daniel Balud restaurant, and it was fantastic. And as I watched uh, the the kitchen, everything that would go to the chef, he would taste it, and then he would plate it, and then he would send it out. And I saw him push back the food a couple of times to the cooks. Um, and everything that I tried that came out of that kitchen was just perfect. It wasn't the most creative food in terms that uh, stuff that I hadn't seen before, but it was one of the most delicious meals I've had in years. Rewind that to another restaurant that I ate at where the food was interesting, avant-garde, um, and you have a young hotshot chef in the kitchen. Um, but I noticed no one tasted anything and the food just kind of fell flat. So um, it's amazing how little things like that, like just tasting your food, you know, an experienced chef knows that. Taste your food every time. Um, but, you know, back to your original question, what makes the difference to me is it has to be a combination of both. It has to be a combination of food that's technically done well, uh, food that's well seasoned, and, and it, has to, it has to be creative as well. And if you, could, if you could hit all of those, you have the technical expertise, you have the creativity, and it's well seasoned and well balanced, you, you, you could build an empire off of that. For sure. And like you said, I think that all comes down to trial and error and just doing it every day. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you have to earn it. Um, you know, unfortunately it's, uh, cooking's not a, a, a forgiving sport, so to speak. Um, it's not something for nothing. You have to earn it at some point in your career. You can't just, uh, you, you can't just go in a kitchen today and be the executive chef. Yeah, for sure. So who are some chefs in particular that you are fascinated by, that you look up to, uh, that you think are doing a great job in this day and age? You know, locally here in Austin, there's a, there's a few chefs. I think Kevin Fink from Enmer and Rye here in Austin is, is fantastic. Um, you know, there's a restaurant, Olame, which is really, really fantastic. I love their food as well. Um, Juniper, another restaurant in Austin, does it well. Nationally, um, you know, I look at uh, what Tim Hollingsworth is doing out in California, Val Cantu is doing in California as well. Um, I, I love the restaurant Lazy Bear and seeing what they're doing. Um, you know, icons in, in the business, you know, Thomas Keller, uh, always love what he's doing. Daniel Balud, you know, um, Rene Redzepi, um, Eric Repair, Daniel Hoom. I, I think these guys are, are, you know, they're they're giants who create giants as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and you touched on a bit and I want to go back to it. Uh, so I'm currently in L.A. and I mean, the food scene there is, you know, one of a kind. Uh, and I like to, you know, go around and at least try new things, go to new restaurants. But going to Austin, uh, I was so surprised by the food culture and the different restaurants and everything. So what's it been like being in Austin, working in Austin uh, and just how the city has evolved over the years? You know, Austin is a, is a very progressive food city and it's very young. So a lot of, a lot of the restaurants here, 
um, you, you see that youth and that creativity in the food. And I think, uh, I, I think Austin definitely brings it when it comes to chefs that, that are really trying to, um, you know, push the envelope. I, I think Austin is probably the city in Texas that's, uh, that, that's doing it right. Um, and so being a part of it, I realized that just being here in this game, I had to elevate my game um, and, and, and step it up a little bit. So we have a restaurant here, Garrison. Um, where we have a phenomenal culinary team who, you know, happen to be from California, by the way. Um, and, you know, when, when we came in, we said, you know, our food needs to be on par with some of the best restaurants in the city. And so having other great chefs and other great restaurants in the city pushes us to be better. Um, so, so being in this environment is having that, that competitiveness and having great chefs here definitely, you know, raises all of our game. Definitely. And I mean, being around uh, intelligent people, people that are bettering you, I mean, what else can you ask for? No, you're absolutely right. Um, I've been fortunate to have some great chefs around me, and I'm very fortunate to live in a city that has some fantastic chefs as well. So just tying it all together, uh, do you have like any any thoughts on the future of your industry, uh, like where things are going? You know, we talked about the digital side. We talked about these like emerging TV shows and everything. I mean, do you have, hopefully it's not bleak, but do you have like a vision for like the next five years, the next 10, 15 years? Yeah, I think, I think we're, we're, we might have some problems soon. You know, the, um, the shortage of, uh, of, of culinary resources, meaning uh, human resources or cooks um, here in the States is, is a pretty big problem. You know, I, culinary schools are closing the Le Cordon Bleu culinary school uh, closed nationwide, I believe. And well, it, it's, it, yeah, it's creating a shortage of of cooks. So people aren't graduating from culinary school as quick. Um, restaurants are popping up all over. Uh, people still want to be chefs uh, in terms of you know, they're still getting excited because they're watching food television programs. So people are still opening restaurants. People are still people are going out to eat more. Um, more restaurants are opening, but we don't have the resources to feed all the people in terms of. Uh, you know, well, who's going to cook the food, right? So um, this displacement issue is, is, it's pretty big and it's only going to get bigger until we, um, uh, and, until we figure it out. Um, and, and, it, and it's a, and it's a big problem. And I know a lot of, uh, a lot of, there's a lot of really good minds out there. You know, you look at uh, um, uh, D- uh, Danny Myers, who's looking at removing tipping from all his restaurants. So, you know, the front of the house makes just as much as the, as the back of the house, which I think is a, a very innovative concept. I've seen restaurants where, um, the chefs are also the servers and they rotate. So one day they're a cook, the next day they're a waiter. Um, so there, there's, there's things that people are coming up with to, uh, to, to get around, you know, the shortage that, that we're facing. Um, and I think this is just the tip of the iceberg, I, but it's, it, but it is a big problem. And I think most chefs right now recognize that this is probably the biggest problem that our industry is facing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so just you personally, uh, do you have a favorite meal that you like to cook and a least favorite? You know, um, I, I, I love to make Italian food at home. Um, you know, when I'm in the restaurant, I, 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 I cook to the concept. But when I'm at home, I would say, you know, when I'm in my comfort zone, you know, I'm, I'm making Italian food, whether I'm making pasta or I'm making Sunday gravy or something like that. I love, I love to make that for my family and they, they enjoy it very much. So I would say if I have a go-to, I go to the more simple um, I, I don't get extravagant at home. You know, my, my, uh, I, I find that the simple things I enjoy more, you know, I, I, I've never woken up in the middle of the night and said, you know, I, not to pick on Renee Redzepi, I never woke up in the middle of the night and said, oh, I'm craving that, uh, avocado cooked in crocodile fat, you know, <laughs> <laughs> 
but you know, you wake up and you crave the comfort foods that you, that, uh, that you grew up with or, or that, uh, that resonate with you. So that's, that's what I look to when I'm looking to cook for, for people that I care about. I look to whether it's a, a homemade Indian curry, um, or whether it's, you know, a, a pasta dish, uh, you know, making a, an annulati for someone that I care for, you know, that's, that's going to, that's going to mean more to me than, than something extravagant. Um, so that's what I like cooking at home. Um, what I don't like cooking per se, I, I would say, uh, you know, early in my career, I started out as a, in the pastry shop. Um, and, uh, you know, I did that for about two years and then I moved out of the pastry shop and, uh, I, I don't like to bake. I, and, and, and it's not because I have anything against, because I, I love eating cake and I love eating sweets. I have the biggest sweet tooth, don't we all? Uh, but, but, but it's too complicated for me. I like, I like to be able to add a little bit of this, add a little bit of that. And it comes out good. Uh, and do you have a favorite guilty pleasure food? Something, you know, you don't like usually telling people that you eat. <laughs> you know, yeah, I do. And it's funny that you bring this up. So the other day, um, I was eating a, uh, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which happens to be my guilty pleasure. I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, right? And so I, I was at the fridge and I, I had a strawberry jelly, which I love, and I had grape jelly, which I love. And I thought to myself, which one am I going to eat? Am I going to eat strawberry jelly or am I going to eat grape jelly? And I had a moment where I said, why don't I eat them both? And this was a breakthrough for me. You have to understand because I, you know, <laughs> I've eaten peanut butter and jelly my whole life. And I've never thought to put two types of jelly on it. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of laughed at myself. I've never done that either. <laughs> I kind of laughed at myself. Never done that either. <laughs> it was brilliant. And I said, you know, best peanut butter and jelly sandwich ever. So if I had a guilty that's, pleasure. That's awesome. Everyone always asks me, what do you cook at home? I bet you have these fantastic meals. I said, you know, you'd, you'd be disappointed if you, if you ate like me. Because, you know, my go-to is usually a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something like that. That's my guilty pleasure. I'm literally on the same train. I like the same thing, except I like to put the peanut butter and jelly in the fridge for like a couple hours. I don't know why. I think it brings me back to like childhood, <laughs> like camp and there stuff. You, go. you know, they would like it would like be in the fridge. It's my thing too. Uh, well, Andre, thank you so much for coming on, uh, and also thank you for uh, making us hungry. It was a pleasure. Thanks, man, and thank you everyone for listening to today's food and beverage podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Josh Fisher. See ya.